Well, uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in uh, Zechariah chapter 10 as we uh, move again uh, further into Zechariah, getting uh, to really this last section of Zechariah. It's really uh, kind of divided into three parts, the book of Zechariah, uh, and we are uh, squarely in the last section coming to uh, a few oracles that Zechariah has, and uh, we will continue uh, in this first oracle. Uh, again, Zechariah 10. We, um, if you have a pew Bible you'd like to use, our passage this evening uh, begins on page 1014. Um, 1014, but again, Zechariah 10. And we'll read the, the scripture and uh, see what God has to say to us from his word. So again, Zechariah chapter 10, and we will be looking at verses 6 through uh, the end of the chapter, verse 12. So again, hear uh, God's word. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return." I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name declares the Lord. Thus far, God's inerrant and infallible word, would he write its truth upon our hearts. Well, as we uh, just sang together, uh, and good hymns and well-known hymns uh, this evening, as were chosen by, by all the congregation, um, when I read this passage, I was reminded of a, a hymn that I like and uh, that we sometimes sing, but... Uh, Praise the Lord the Almighty by Joachim Neander, and uh, one of the few good German songwriters. But anyway, Joachim Neander, and the reason I thought about it uh, is because in Praise the Lord the Almighty, or Praise to the Lord the Almighty, uh, that line that you probably know and might even be thinking of, uh, where he says, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. Again, what God, uh, I used to sing what God will do, but I guess the official lyrics are what God can do if with, with his love he will befriend thee. And in our passage tonight, verses 6 through 12, we see what God will do, uh, what it is that God will do for his people. Uh, in fact, in verses 6 through 12, we see eight times that God talks about what he will do. I will do this. I will strengthen I will bring them. I will save them. 
Um, I will whistle for them, and so forth. He continues to talk about what he himself will do. So again, back to that uh, hymn, what God will do for his people is what we see in these verses. Now, again, uh, just very shortly, God's people, Zechariah, was written in a context. He is a prophet in Jerusalem who had come back from Babylon from the deportation that the people were sent out uh, into due to their sin, and then he's back there to build the temple. They begin, they face difficulty, they stop, and now it's 18 years later, and God raises up Haggai and Zechariah to exhort the people to get back to work. I have brought you here, you're afraid, but I am with you, get back to work, and then we see these, as we had seen, lots of visions, and uh, as we move into uh, chapters 9 through 14, we have these two oracles about the future uh, and, and the what God is going to do for his people. And, and therefore, in light of what God is going to do, they are to act. In light of his promises, uh, they are to act trusting in him to keep his uh, promises. Now, while again, it is true that God historically uh, did send the Jews out of of Jerusalem and Judea, the area around it, uh, into Babylon. That, that did actually happen historically. It's not a, a fairy tale or anything. Uh, while that did happen, and while it's true that he did even bring them back and, uh, under the Persians after they had defeated the, the Babylonians, and it's even talked about outside of the Bible, and that was a, a common thing, actually, that Darius did with uh, several of, of the peoples uh, in his uh, domain of the Persians. Uh, while this restoration really did happen where God brought his people back to the land, uh, this restoration promised by God was never uh, supposed to be merely a physical restoration to the land of Canaan. It, it wasn't just come back to the land and, and everything will be great. And uh, that's, that was not the ultimate point, of course, of the restoration of the people uh, to the land, just as God rescued the people out of Egypt, out of their slavery and bondage uh, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The ultimate point of that was not sort of what you hear with the maybe social gospel, uh, that God just saw people who were hurting in slavery and he wanted to free them and set the captives free. Of course, it's a, a picture. He did actually do that. This did really happen, but it's a picture uh, to teach us something much deeper and, of course, that's about God rescuing his people uh, from their bondage, not to Egypt or Babylon, per se, but to their sin. That God rescues people from their bondage to sin, a problem that we all have, uh, that we inherit from our uh, first parents, Adam and Eve, and that we walk in ourselves, is our bondage to sin. And and we see this problem uh, throughout the Bible as we go to uh, the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, of course, as well. But uh, in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, this often comes up where the Pharisees and the people want Jesus to do certain kind of tricks, his, his signs, as John calls them, or miracles. And Jesus will point out that they're not understanding the miracles. Uh, of course, in, in John 6, and I think tied to Zechariah 9 and 10 as Verses 9, 10, and 11 are one unit in Zechariah, but as uh, we read before uh, about, not tonight, but about God being upset with his shepherds, those who would lead his people, and 
as Jesus has mercy on the people because they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he feeds them. Remember, he feeds the 5,000. He, he does a miracle where he creates. Uh, he, he does an act that only God could do where he takes just a small bit of food and he's able to feed 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people. Could be more, we don't know. But, and there's food left over. This is an absolute miracle. And the next day, the people ultimately get upset with Jesus because he won't do this bread miracle again. They wanted to do this bread trick. And he's telling them that to not work for the bread which perishes, but for that which will give them eternal life. And then he pushes farther to say that he is the bread from heaven. And, and of course, people really grumble then. They're looking just physically at these kind of things. And uh, ultimately, it's their hearts uh, that the problem is. Again, they're in the land, the promised land, but they're lost as can be. And they're far away, and that Jesus later in the gospel, of course, can tell them that they're actually the children of the devil, uh, although these are Jews who are in the land. So, again, uh, we see this in our passage even tonight where uh, we want to look and understand that God did literally do these things. He did actually happen, uh, but again, they're to point us to something beyond that. Now, uh, as we have this prophecy, again, which there's two and at the end of Zechariah, verses 9 through 11, and then 12 through 14, these oracles. Uh, it can be helpful to, to know that uh, sometimes with prophecy, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, there can be multiple fulfillments of prophecy. Uh, it's kind of like a, a mountain peak, or a mountain range, I should say, that you're looking at from afar. And it looks like, you know, say you're in the Himalayas, or you're far away, and you see them, and you see mountain peaks, and it looks like, oh, I see, you know, where this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and, and it's uh, given as if they all are happening at the exact same time, but not realizing that there can be broad areas of time between those mountain peaks, which from a distance look like they're right next to each other, and uh, sometimes we, we see uh, things like that, where uh, a prophecy is made, and in its immediate context, we see it perhaps fulfilled, and then Later on, ultimately, uh, we see that it's fulfilled in Christ and in his life and his death and resurrection on our behalf. And then even beyond that, we see that stretching out to uh, the second coming of Christ when the prophecies and promises will come in their fullness uh, when Jesus returns for his people at the end of the age. So as an example... Uh, in Zechariah, in, in chapters 8 and 9, just the preceding chapters, it speaks about the prosperity that's going to come to Jerusalem. And Zechariah foretells a day when, when Judah's enemies will no longer oppress them or, or use their name. Is, uh, Judah, or uh, at this time period, is kind of when we got the term Jew, uh, which just came from Judah. Uh, but uh, it would be a, a, a term of derision, really, originally. And, uh, and Israel would be as well as a place that you kind of make fun of somebody for being from. And he foretells this, this time where you see, you know, the grain abounding and, and the uh, harvest abounding and uh, the people no longer, their enemies no longer attacking them and them going out and so forth. Where, well, in a sense, it is fulfilled in a certain sense in even the time of Zechariah. Now, if you remember, they were building the temple and getting back to it. And at this time, you have these people who are uh, struggling and afraid, and not long from now, they actually will get back to work, and they'll complete the temple. And when Nehemiah comes, as we read Ezra and Nehemiah, this is during that time period, 
Uh, they, of course, will then build the wall around Jerusalem as well. And Jerusalem will go from, from being a city that's really just a heap of ruins uh, to, to a, a respectable city again. And they'll have more security and so forth. So, in a sense, uh, they will be successful then. Remember, again, Zechariah is talking to people back then, and it's not just future, and this has nothing to do with them. Uh, But of course, it's fulfilled ultimately in Christ, uh, who rescues his people from the tyranny of sin and death. Uh, Our greatest enemy, as the Bible even says, the last enemy to be defeated will be death. But the enemy that we all have uh, is the fact, or the problem, I should say, that we all have, is that we're sinners, whether this is in the time of Christ, uh, or the time of Zechariah, or now, all of us stand guilty before God, and that uh, victory over uh, vanquishing our sin, uh, taking our sin and dealing with it, that God can, can call us just and still be a just God, uh, because he gives us Christ's righteousness, and, and where the accuser, the devil, uh, can no longer accuse, he can still accuse us, but not have any real... Um, leg to stand on, so to speak, uh, happens when Jesus dies at the cross. As he lives this meritorious life and then dies, uh, we see this fulfilled there. But then ultimately, of course, we still have enemies. We still have difficulties that we face as, as Christians. And ultimately, uh, all the enemies of God uh, will be dealt with when Christ returns and as he destroys Satan and all of his enemies and uh, rescues his people. And as they can worship him in holiness and in peace for eternity in a new heavens and new earth. So again, we see this kind of sometimes that there can be multiple fulfillments of a specific prophecy uh, in the Bible. And we see that, as I said, in the uh, chapters that precede what we just read. Now, this is very common in Zechariah. And as you read books around this time, uh, Malachi and, and this type of literature called apocalyptic literature, especially if you read the book of Revelation, you see kind of the, the same thing, and you're wondering, when in the world is this fulfilled? And then it seems like it's happening again, and then it's happening again. And, uh, you know, it's because it's kind of showing the same thing. I'm, I'm persuaded it's showing the same thing from different perspectives over and over again. But um, we see this in this what's called apocalyptic uh, literature, which is we see here in Zechariah as well. And uh, it's very common. You'll have the picture of God reigning from Zion as a king. God reigns from Zion. You've heard that before, okay? Zion's name for Jerusalem. Uh, but Mount Zion, it's a mountain, and you have to go up to Zion because you're going up altitude-wise. And God is reigning, and you see the people in Jerusalem worshiping God in peace, and you see people from the nations around them flowing into, taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to Zion, to worship also the king who is there. And we see that even in, in, again, Zechariah's day, as the people are coming from Babylon and these far uh, places, and again, as the temple is completed, and then there's a wall in Jerusalem, people start to hear about that, more Jews start to come back. Uh, But we see that also as Christ dies on the cross, and as we hear about in Revelation, that he purchased for himself people from every tribe and tongue and nation. As we hear, uh, you know, Many, many thousands, seven, eight thousand miles away from Jerusalem, more than that, uh, 10,000 miles away, uh, come to Christ uh, tonight to worship him. And ultimately, this will be fulfilled, of course, when Christ returns and peoples of all tribes, tongue, and, and nations 
worship him in the new heaven and new earth and dwell in righteousness. So we make an error if we take the Bible only to be about the spiritual. You know, this is what uh, people who uh, generally were called liberals and so forth would do, where they deny the historicity of the Bible. You know, these things didn't really take, they're kind of fairy tales and fables that, you know, teach us lessons and that's what it's all about. Uh, Paul makes clear that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that all this is a joke that you shouldn't follow. The Bible claims that this all really took place, literally actually happened, and it did. So we, we, you make an error if you say this is, all this is is to teach us lessons. Uh, however, we also make an error if we go the other way and we make it where it's only about the physical. Uh, the, the, the prophecy of God bringing his people back to Jerusalem is just, that's what it's about. Just what more do you want than, than you know, the Exodus is just about God bringing his people back. There, there's no really implications for anything else. Um, our confession of faith, I believe very rightly, says this about the Bible and our interpretation of the scriptures. In chapter 1, in the ninth section on the Holy Scriptures, it says that the best interpreter of the Scripture is the Scripture itself. This is called the analogy of faith. But if you want to know what the Bible teaches, and oftentimes you read the Bible, certainly something like Zechariah, and you read and you say, I don't know what that means. I read it quite often and say, I don't know what that means right there. And, uh, well, the best thing to do if you want to know what the Bible means is to continue reading. And sometimes there are places that will clear up places that are more murky. And of course, not all parts of Scripture are as easy to interpret as other parts. But what we also do is we take those clear portions of Scripture and we uh, interpret the not-so-clear parts in light of the clear parts. And that's, I believe, what we should be doing even this evening and a lot in what we're looking at here in Zechariah. So again, the analogy of scripture. Well, as we go to the New Testament, uh, just a few weeks ago, and this must have been when we are in Charleston, because I don't remember hearing Matt preach on this, but about Jesus coming into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. Now, we all know that. The triumphal entry, it's in all four Gospels. Jesus comes as the king riding on the donkey, the fool of a donkey, so a young donkey. Well, of course, that's in Zechariah just a little bit earlier in chapter 9. And like I said a minute ago, Chapters 9 through 11 are one unit in Zechariah. It's a prophecy. Uh, it's an oracle. So I believe it is true that partic- in particular, uh, what Zechariah is talking about here uh, is being fulfilled in Christ and continues on, yes, but uh, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So again, uh, we see this in, uh, back in Zechariah 9 where we just read about Jesus coming, or the king who will come riding on a donkey. Now again, I know this is all intro, but this is, uh, I don't have much, uh, don't worry. (laughs) I've got my watch here too. But um, Rick Phillips, who uh, me and Matt uh, quote quite often, because I think he probably has the best commentary on uh, Zechariah that's out right now, but he's the pastor at Second Pres in Greenville. And in, he talks about in 1 Corinthians 10 that we're not just making this up. This isn't Presbyterians who don't like to take the Bible seriously. No, we like to take the Bible seriously. And this is what Paul tells us to do uh, in 1 Corinthians 10. He's writing to these Corinthians. They're Gentiles. They're pagans. Okay? And he is talking about the wilderness generation. He's talking about the Bible with them. He's talking about the people who God rescued out of Egypt 
who are with Moses and who are not listening to God in the wilderness. And then he tells them that these things happened to the Jews. They happened as examples for them, the Corinthians, these Greek pagans who've been converted. He says these things happened to them, to the people back then, a couple thousand years ago, for you, for us, and for us by extension who are here tonight in Dillon. Uh, he doesn't just say, now these things were written down as examples for us. Again, these are fairy tales that the Jews believed back then, the ancient Hebrew people, and whether or not they really happened really doesn't matter. Um, that's not what Paul says, and he doesn't say, these things happen, and it's for the Jews only, has no bearing on us, we're Gentiles, uh, and then one day I'll get back to being with the Jews either. Uh, this is actually what Paul says. He says, now these things, after talking about them grumbling and so forth in the wilderness, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, now these things happened to them as an example. So they happened to them as an example, but they were written down. Meaning scripture, we have right now our Bibles. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So again, did this literally happen? Where there Was there really an exodus, which a lot of people uh, in the secular world, and unfortunately some in the quote-unquote Christian world, deny now? Um, yes, there really was. Uh, it really did happen. And is it also supposed to point to something more than just God bringing a people out of, uh, out of slavery, physical slavery, because he didn't like their anything? Yes, it is. It is also to point to uh, what God does with the sinner, what he God does with his people. And how do I know that? Well, another part of the Bible as well, uh, a whole lot of the Bible. But in particular, I think Matt might have even quoted this this morning, but in Colossians, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians as well, but speaking again to mainly Gentiles, Paul says this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Okay, this is the domain, the kingdom that we lived in, darkness. And God rescued us from it. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So he delivered us, rescued us from the darkness, brought us into his own kingdom in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, when we're reading about being saved, redeemed, all these words are still going back to the Old Testament and looking at the people being in bondage and being rescued. Again, did that happen? Yes. Is it pointing to something even more deep, I guess, a spiritual, a problem that we all have, and not just the Jews physically? Of course. It's our bondage to sin. Remember this. There were plenty of people who were sent out into Babylon, and who came back to Jerusalem, and people in Jerusalem in Jesus' day who were as lost and as far from God as you could possibly be. People who came from Babylon and traveled all the way back to Jerusalem, and were the ones who Zechariah is talking to now, telling them to get back to work. And they think because they come back to the land, they're, right, they're God's people. They're not. Remember, again, the Gospel of John. And when Jesus said, they said, we have Moses as our father. And Jesus said, if you had Moses, you listen to him because he spoke about me. Um, so again, there is a spiritual truth that we are to get from uh, Jesus's miracles and other things as well. So again, uh, these things happen, but they point to our reconciliation uh, to God. So again, that's what we see here in our passage tonight in these verses 6 through 12. And again, Rick Phillips, I do not mind at all uh, leaning on him for this, but uh, because I think it's exactly what this chapter is about. 
He says these verbs and these, uh, what is stated here that God will do are basically ways of describing what God will do for a Christian or describing what a Christian is. Uh, and just look with me, if you will, at these verses uh, and what he says he will do. He will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. So God will strengthen. Again, if you're a believer, this applies to you. Uh, God will strengthen you and save you. Okay, ultimately, again, from your enemy, uh, your own sin, which speaks against you, and even God's wrath. It will bring you back and have compassion on them. And then the reason why, at the end of verse 6, God says he'll do this, because he's their God, he's our God, and he will do this. As he continues on, it talks about even children being glad about these things happening. He continues on, not only being made strong, he says that they will remember his name that they will return to their God, and they will walk in his name. All these things that God will do for his people. This is what he does to us, is he takes a wayward people who are lost, who are trapped in sin, and God calls us and brings him to himself, and he triumphs over our adversaries. As we uh, look at how God does this, if you look at verses 8 and 9, and I know some of you have King James uh, versions of the Bible, uh, but I like verse 8 when it says that God will do this, and it says that he will whistle for them and gather them in. And you probably know, if you know your Old Testament, that this is used in Isaiah famously for him whistling for the Assyrians to come. It's actually the enemies who are going to punish God's people, but here he whistles for his people to bring them in. And I know in the King James, I believe it says that he will hiss for them to come. And uh, if you have hiss, don't think of a snake or something like that. But really, the idea is whistle, but it's that kind of whistle that I'm still jealous of people who can do it. My uncle, who's a firefighter and Vietnam vet and very manly, would do it where he does that, like, finger thing where it's very loud. It's not you walking down the road whistling as you do whatever. This is whistling for somebody far away to get to you, and he used to call his, my cousins to come to him by doing that. Um, that's what he's talking about. That's why it talks about the hiss, is that loud noise. I can't do it. I wish you could. But uh, God is, is really doing that whistle, calling for his people to come. And of course, as we look at the Bible, as we look, we see God calling his people through the gospel. Um, again, you can take all the trips to Israel that you want and still be as lost as anything. You can, I'll say right now, we can have the, the Jews and Palestinians fighting over specific types of land which I'm not trying to get political here, but unless the people who are Jews and Palestinians are believers in the Lord, they will still, they could earn that land or whatever, win that land, and go to hell eternally uh, unless they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, if we're just looking at physical, you're missing it. That's what they were doing in Jesus' day as well and why they actually rejected Jesus because he didn't meet their expectations of what they wanted the king to do. So he's going to call his people from a far country and bring them to him. And of course, how does he do this? He does that through the preaching of the gospel. And that's why Paul could say that he was not ashamed of the gospel. And people made fun of him. About, you're talking about some Jewish guy who lives in some podunk little town over where the Jews live, and that he died, and then he came back to, okay, this is great, Paul. Uh, but Paul wasn't ashamed or embarrassed of that because he knew it was through the preaching of the gospel, where he'd be made fun of and everything, that a lot of people would sneer and laugh and, or just pretend like they care but not care. But some people, though that whistle, that hiss, went out to all the people, some people would actually 
hear it. They'd hear what's called the effectual call. You know, God sends and God offers the gospel freely, but those whom God has chosen will, otherwise we'd all reject God, but he speaks to us internally where we hear him and actually respond to the gospel. Again, that's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, as Matt even said this morning again. Uh, isn't that you've re- It is that, but ultimately at the end of the day, we have nobody to thank but God himself for the reason that we responded to the gospel. But we have the gospel proclamation going out and some people responding to it and starting to, as it were, to flow to Jerusalem, to go to God, to want to hear his word. We see also in verses 10 and 12, salvation and redemption being pictured in terms of Israel being redeemed from their enemies, uh, Egypt and Assyria. And, and again, this would be, I realize they just come from Babylon, but it started with Assyria and went on to Babylon and Persia and so forth. So these are the two kind of perennial, the, the two big bad guys you think of uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the enemies of God's people. In verse 10, it says, I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. And then it continues on, verses 11 and 12, and uses language taken from the book of Exodus, also of God rescuing his people out of bondage again. So the question is, is all this just pointing to Zechariah's day and then uh, God bringing people back from Exodus uh, or is all this just looking to someday when the Jew- Jews would rule unhindered and unbothered? Well, the place I want to look that I believe talks about this is in the New Testament, and it's in the book of Luke. Uh, you go forward about 400 years, and the last prophet, Malachi, is just slightly after Zechariah in terms of chronology. I realize in terms of books, he's right after him. But chronology, they kind of overlap one another. And that's the last person who God spoke through. And then Luke, the next person who God raises up really as a prophet, is John the Baptist. Uh, However, his father, Zechariah, just by coincidence, uh, happens to also prophesy when John the Baptist is born. And again, listen to what Zechariah says when his son, John the Baptist, is born. You remember, of course, he didn't believe the angel, so he can't speak. But before... uh, but when his tongue is loosed, uh, he says this in first. I'm sorry, in Luke chapter one, uh, and verses uh, 68 through 75. And notice this. Sorry, verse 67. That the Bible says that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. So I don't think this is just Zechariah, and he's incorrect in what he's saying. It says he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, and said, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel." For he has visited and redeemed his people. Okay, they're living in, they've been in Israel now for hundreds of years. But he's redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Again, thinking of this king who will come, which is not John the Baptist, by the way. This is not uh, somebody, you know, Zechariah is a Levite. Remember, he's a priest. So he's talking about Jesus, not John. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him 
all our days. If you continue on, he starts to talk about his son then and how he will go before this one who's coming, which of course is Jesus, and he will let people know that that one who Malachi said is coming, is coming. That king who would ride on the donkey is coming, and that's the Lord Jesus. So we see that Zechariah seemed to believe that this is ultimately being fulfilled in Christ. Again, if you go to Hebrews, we see that Abraham, the, the man, if you go all the way back to Genesis, who the land promises were made to, who the promises of you know, everything that, of course, people are still fighting about to this day, or on one level they are. Um, you see in Hebrews, as you go to that chapter of faith, the hall of faith, chapter 11 in Hebrews, that he and his sons after him, Isaac and Jacob, these people who God had promised the land and so forth, if you're just looking at merely from a physical perspective, uh, that they more or less were fine with living in tents and, and not owning uh, really a foot of this land, except for the, the cave that they buried people in. Uh, but they were fine with that. And he says why, the author of the Hebrews, and he says, because they were looking for the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Uh, they understood this was not just about, I'm taking you from Ur to another place, and that's the name, the, that's what the Bible is about. The Bible is about God, yes, he did do that, but it's to point to God rescuing us who need to be rescued from that far country, our sin, our destruction that we deserve that's coming to us, and rescuing us by Christ and bringing us into his family. So again, uh, we look at all these things and we realize uh, this is what's going on. Now, this isn't, again, just last little aside, this isn't ruling out for sure. I think Romans 11 even teaches that God ultimately will uh, rescue the Jews, uh, ethnically Jewish people, near the end. You know, we're in the last days, but it doesn't mean that there's not a last of the last days. And that uh, In that last portion, it seems to me that it seems to indicate that the hardening that's on ethnically Jewish people uh, on, you know, by and large, will be removed near there at the end, and that they will do what believers from Abraham to us now do, which is trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but um, again, this is not just about the land. This is about coming to the Lord and ultimately the life and everything that we have in him. We have eternal life. We have all things in him. And God promised the people in Zechariah that he would do that, uh, God has accomplished that in Christ, and Christ will return one day to do that. Uh, he, he does, I'm sorry, he does that now through the preaching of the gospel and us trusting in that, but that will come in its fullness when Christ returns uh, one day that we don't know, but he will certainly return. So again, let us ponder uh, all those things that God will do for us. He will bring us home. He will rescue us. He will vanquish our foes. We will worship him in peace uh, from our enemies. Uh, again, he's our God who rules over all things providentially and for the good of his people. So let us uh, go to him in prayer. Our Father, we, um, Father, we pray that you would help us to, uh, you know, we live in this world, Lord, but we are not to be of this world, Lord, and we, we realize as Christians that, um, Paul said to be absent from the body was to be present with you. And uh, Paul even looked and said to be uh, with you was far better to be in the body. Lord, we pray that as 
Uh, we go in this life and we live in this world and we do need things. We need shelter. We need food. Uh, Lord, that we would not uh, become so obsessed with these things that we forget or cloud the reality uh, that these point to and the reality of what is to come, that Christ will return, that your promises, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we'd be about calling your people home by proclaiming the gospel freely, that people, uh, your people, Lord, that whosoever will, but we know, Lord, those whom you draw will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, would you continue this work of drawing your people uh, around the world, in Honduras and in Africa and in the Middle East, and, Lord, here in the Bible Belt, where uh, we've become so hardened to you in our land, in America, and we need revival and grace so bad. Uh, Lord, those of us who do know you, would we be quick to share the gospel uh, with those who do not know you, knowing uh, that you will save your people. So again, we thank you for your mercy. Please do all that concerns us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.